There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday at 10 a.m. ET to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, I am thrilled to have Steve Blank, who might be considered the father of modern entrepreneurship. Steve Blank is an adjunct professor at Stanford and senior fellow for innovation at Columbia University. He's been described as the father of modern entrepreneurship, credited with launching the Lean Startup Movement and the curriculums for the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps and Hacking for Defense and Diplomacy. He's changed how startups are built, how entrepreneurship is taught, how science is commercialized, and how companies and government innovate. Steve is the author of The Four Steps to the Epiphany and the Startup Owner's Manual, which identified the first real templates for building successful startups, while his May 2013 Harvard Business Review cover story redefined how large companies can innovate at speed. Steve is a founding faculty member of the Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation at Stanford, where his latest class, Technology, Innovation, and Great Power Competition, is providing crucial new insights into how technology will reshape all the elements of national power. And if you want a regular unfiltered dose of Steve's powerful thinking, he blogs at www.steveblank.com. Steve, welcome to the show. We have so much to talk about. Well, thanks for having me. But after that introduction, I guess I could go home now. <laughs> well, it sort of misses the personal touch and like 40 years of really smart thinking in entrepreneurship, which is what I hope to try and uh, tap out of you. So to start things off, you were an entrepreneur and you, you were involved, I guess, as you say, in a few rocket ships and a few base hits. Um, so can you sum up your entrepreneurship career for us? Yeah, and, and you missed, I, I also had two craters so deep they left their own iridium layer. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so my entrepreneurial career, I, I spent uh, four years in the U.S. Air Force and then came out to, to Silicon Valley. 
in the gosh in the 70s it sounds like in the 18th century you know with sled dogs but um they had radio uh, back then right well i think i think the movies might have might have still been in black and white um <laughs> but um uh, I did eight startups in uh, in 21 years, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a couple of hits, a couple of home runs. But actually, the most learning came from uh, truly those couple of craters, um, you know, where I had to think about what what worked and didn't and why. Um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a fun ride as an entrepreneur. Uh, all of them were VC funded companies or venture capital funded companies. And then um, I started thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship when I was lucky enough to retire uh, 20 years ago. Right. So you're credited as one of the founders of the popular lean startup theory, but people get confused about that because then they look up lean startup and find out that's a book by Eric Reese, and they may not know that you helped train him early on. Can you sort of sort that out for me? Yeah, Eric was, uh, was a, A, my best student, but B, uh, <laughs> I invested in the companies he was in and sat on his board, and we, he became the first practitioner of customer development anywhere in the world. In fact, when he when he decided it was a great idea, the total available market went from one to two uh, people who believed in the idea. Um, and so, uh, Eric has been great. In fact, uh, you know, I'll go through a bit of the history when we talk about why Lean and how it came about and what we used to do. But basically. Uh, you know, my contribution to Lean was uh, the customer development methodology, which basically can be summed up in, in this phrase that says, there are no facts inside your building, so get the heck outside. Um, Eric's observation, once we started working together, was, well, Steve, that's great, but you still believe in the 20th century development model of waterfall engineering. You know, that's no longer true. People use agile engineering, and it's a perfect combination to customer development. So it was Eric who came up with the idea of pairing agile development with customer development. And we had the beginnings of something really interesting now because, you know, while I was talking about rapid development, we came up with the idea of the minimum viable product. And and while I had drawn the pivot, Eric actually slapped a, slapped the name on it and, and uh, we were off to the races. Right. And then a couple of years later, uh, I discovered Alexander Osterbolder's work um, I was teaching with a, a woman who's now a venture capitalist, Anne Miracle, and she said, oh, you got to go see this thing. We've been trying to struggle you, uh, with uh, how to describe a business model. This guy nailed it. And I, at the same time, had been reading his PhD thesis. I said, no, you got to read this PhD thesis first. And, actually, and we put, literally pushed the documents across the table to each other and realized it was from the same guy. It was Osterwalder. And he happened to be in the U.S. and... Uh, uh, and so we met him, and, and uh, that became the third leg of, for me for the Lean Startup is that, um, and we'll talk more about this, but you basically get to frame and articulate your hypotheses using a single piece of paper, the business model canvas. You use customer development to get the heck out of the building to kind of test them. It's nice that you have some assumptions or guesses, um, but let's get out of the building physically and nowadays virtually to test them. And then Eric Reese's point is, and now let's go build MVPs with agile engineering, meaning we could build things iteratively and incrementally and get feedback, you know, almost instantaneously. And those three components, customer development, uh, my contribution, uh, Eric's contribution of agile engineering, and then um, Osterwalder's contribution of the business model canvas is essentially the foundation that modern entrepreneurship is built upon. 
and and by now, of course, 20 years later, there are hundreds of, you know, things on top of it and, you know, books and whatever, all the better, all making it better. And now there's a, also this notion of combining jobs to be done with uh, um, with customer development. Um, so, so something I thought that might be an interesting idea turned out to be the foundation of, I think, uh, uh, scaling entrepreneurship past I got advice via coffee from people I met, which used to be the model of how entrepreneurs got smarter. We were limited by our coffee bandwidth. There really was no literature or theory or methodology other than startups or smaller versions of large companies. That's what investors essentially told us. Though I'm not sure I ever heard that phrase. That's how they managed startups in the 20th century. Do everything a big company does, you know, hire head of sales, hire head of marketing, biz dev, all on day one, you know, um, go to alpha test, beta test, first customer ship, and, and we'll stand back in the piles of money. We'll just, you know, show up at our doorstep. And right. of course, it never worked that way, but we didn't know why. So I'm going to exhale. You had, I don't even know if I, I don't even remember your question, but um, I think it was about the relationship between Eric and I, and, and I hope that kind of explained it a bit. Yeah, um, that, 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 that pretty much sets up the whole know, foundation. I'll strike out the next and, and questions. And by the way, the, the whole movement wouldn't have happened without Eric. He ran the Lean Startup Conference, and you know he, he came over to the ranch. I remember he stayed in the, uh, one of my cottages, and we talked about he should write a book about his experiences, and we talked about what to name it, and you know... Um, I, I sign off my blog as uh, lessons learned, and, and you know, all of a sudden that became his his motto, which I thought was great. I mean, I I think um, I think Eric became the chief proselytizer of the entire movement, and would it never have happened uh, at scale, or at least at the time it did, without uh, his efforts. So, uh, you know, everybody stands on each other's shoulders, and I think we've all raised. Um, the state of the art of entrepreneurship, at least it was one of the factors, along with Amazon Web Services and open source and the rest, that um, literally created a Cambrian explosion of entrepreneurship in the in the first decade of the 21st century. Right. I mean, to me, it, it all comes down to, and, and, you met, and you just mentioned this, that, you know, a startup is very different from a business. It's not just a baby business. Uh, that that does everything at a tenth the scale of another business, but that it it has a different structure and a different objective altogether. So 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 the big idea that took me a long time to formulate, which is pretty simple when you think about it, is that large companies, as companies that have been in business and have customers and competitors and existing distribution channels, large companies execute known business models. That is, you hire people to do a job that's already whose hypotheses have already been tested. People are buying your product. They, you know what features they want. You know what price you could sell it at. So it's basically an execution, a repeatable and scalable process. But startups don't do that. That's why it's called a startup. It's a, startups are searching for a business model. And this distinction between search and execution had never been articulated before. <clears throat> and more importantly is w once you kind of framed it like that, you realized we had built a hundred years of tools and, and methodologies in business schools for execution. You know, you go to Harvard, you know, website, and you could find a million articles about how to run and manage an existing company. But there was very lo little literature about what's different from the early stages of a, of a new venture. And I remember going to, you know, 
business schools around the country trying to explain this, and they patted me on the head and said, Steve, how hard could five people in a garage be? We're consulting for a company that, and that have 100,000 people. And I realized that that was coming from very smart people who, you know, never had to raise money or, you know, had to like, oh, scrounge for customers or, you know, figure out why people don't want their products, et cetera. Um, and, and that's where the idea that we needed different tools and, and techniques that, that differentiated the two. that constitute sort of the, the whole lean methodology. Have they been researched and tested? Is there any sort of long-term research that says, hey, this doing it this way really does work or works better than other ways? There's the equivalent amount of research on, on the, the lean methodology as there is on any other methodology. And I wish we were on video because I'm smiling ear for ear. Um, <laughs> you know, this is like one of those medical experiments that you, that are illegal to do. Are you going to do an A-B test? I mean, you could, but I've I've seen almost no literature on, you know, um, on, well, let's go write business plans and, and pray for success versus let's actually go to, uh, talk to customers. Um um, but, but, you know, the, the, the good news is, is after 20 years and, you know, millions of entrepreneurs using it, I, I, I think the data is in. But if you're asking, you know, the folks who want evidence are, are the folks who, you know, uh, kind of are gambling on, on luck to make a, a business plan work. Um, so the answer is the short answer. No, not that I know of. But um, I, 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 I think. Uh, you know, I think it, success has is, is kind of been proven by uh, its adoption and the speed um, in which entrepreneurs can move now. Um, and uh, so so that's my short answer. Okay, good enough. I, I, I stand chastised properly. No, no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, it's, you know, if I was running a business school, I'd absolutely be hiring researchers to go. I think that this is a, it's a valid question. But I'm just bemused that no one has actually run an A-B test to say, well, OK, you guys, you know, go use waterfall and and business plans and you group over here. We're just going to let you run lean and and uh, build MVPs and, and uh, see what happens. Uh, but, but no one's run that. In fact, it would be a great experiment. Um, and it's probably ongoing in, in multiple locations where there are still investors who haven't died off yet who who say, well, I don't care about all this stuff. Just write a plan for me and, and we'll we'll pray to the gods that it works. Um, you, you know, it's worth mentioning um, the other piece of, of not lean, but help me get my head around. If you remember the distinction between startup search and companies execute was actually trying to define what is a startup? I mean, what is it? Is it a bunch of guys and women who get together and, you know, have free food and bring their dogs to work? I mean, is that what it is? Or, you know, and and I realized after 20 years of doing it, I didn't quite understand a succinct definition. So I came up with one that I think is pretty actionable. That is, a startup is a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. That is, that's what your job is on day one. First of all, you're a temporary organization. That is, the goal of a startup is not to become a startup. The goal of a startup is to come become an, a company that has found repeatable and scalable parts of how do I do sales? What what's product market fit? What do customers want? You know, um, how do I price this thing? 
So you're looking for things that will give you evidence uh, that those are correct. So for me, that's a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model is a pretty good working definition of, of how to describe a lean startup uh, in this frame. I wonder if that creates expectations, though, around how long does that phase last? Because for some people, that's going to last years, and for other people, they're going to be in a hurry and expect it to take a few weeks. Well, and, and I'm going to um, leave uh, life sciences uh, startups out of this, but for most hardware and software startups, you know, there's no such thing as a seven-year-old startup. There's a, there's a two-year-old startup attached to a five-year-old failure. Um, <laughs> You know, um, I mean, you know, your mileage may vary. Some some folks and want to stick to it forever. Um, but the whole notion of of a startup, particularly if you're in an innovation cluster, is to rapidly figure out whether your idea is valid or not. And if not, pivot and do another one. You know, you know, you're in an innovation cluster that is a a place that rewards and and funds uh, uh, startups and and new ventures is when the definition of a failed entrepreneur is experienced. Um, so, you know, failure is not looked at as, oh my gosh, you shamed your community and family and you'll never get funded again. It just means, great, you took a, took a shot at the goal and time to take another shot at the goal. Right. But again, your mileage may vary. My, my time out, that is my personal one and, and everybody's different, was about three, three and a half years. That's what I would give it. And if it didn't work, uh, off to the next thing. Um, so I, I think that's my answer to how much time. You know, life sciences, by the way, meaning therapeutics or medical devices or diagnostics, uh, you know, those those time frames are completely different and might take decades to to see something uh, uh, something happen at scale. Absolutely, it, I wrote about some of them at the beginning of my career that are just starting to hit their stride now, and that was a long time ago. Um, let me t ask you: Was there an epiphany one day when you got the? the when you realized that there are no answers inside the building, do you remember what it was that made you realize that? Because it's it's one of those things that seems obvious once you've heard it. But yeah. we've well, all met entrepreneurs that have never gone outside. Uh, you know, I'm still suffering from PTSD from that exact moment. I still remember it. Uh, Thirty years later, it was a. I was working in like startup five or six or whatever, and I had a I had a boss who was. Uh, you know, world class, uh, at least reputation at the time, very smart guy. And uh, this was the beginning of the company. We had world class experts in hardware and software. And I was the VP of marketing. And, and we were talking about what features uh, our new product should have. And, you know, the smart people around the room, the engineers who actually knew the customers and knew what we're talking about it. And as the head of marketing, I thought, hey, I haven't heard the sound of my own voice, so so let me just pipe in with my opinion. That's that's what I thought marketing was. And so I piped up and said, we ought to have this feature. Um, and the, the CEO turned to me and said, what did you say? And I could see my friend, who at the time was the VP of sales, like shake his head going, no, 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 no don't. And so I doubled down. I was like, yeah, we ought to have all these features and, you know, here's what we need and whatever. And I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. And the CEO put his face about six inches from mine. If you can imagine the scene of the drill instructor and, in, you know, in, in one of the any war movie you've ever seen and started screaming at me. He said, you don't know a damn thing about our customers. 
the people and the rest of the people in this room have been in this industry for 20 years. Get the heck out of my company. Um, and I thought I had just been fired. And then he said, and take the VP of sales with you and don't come back until you understand what customers need. Um, it was, uh, let me tell you, it was a two by four to the side of the head. And by the way, I was a good Marcom person and I was a pretty good product marketing person to that moment, but I really didn't deeply understand the value of the distinction between my opinion versus customer facts that didn't exist, at least for me. Um, some of those other folks in the room had worked with those customers and, and understood them, but I really hadn't. I just had, you know, a smart guy and then thought, well, you know, here's what we ought to do. Let me tell you, after 60 days of literally not going back into the building and flying across the United States and even Canada at the time, I knew, I knew like I got a four year education in about 60 days and, and that got burned into me about the huge value and how quickly you could do this. Um, Obviously, we weren't domain experts, but boy, I could go up to a whiteboard and, and and draw the diagrams of, you know, each industry and who were the players and who were the key decision makers in each type of industry, et cetera. What were the key conferences and who were the key opinion leaders and whatever that I never would have had sitting in the building thinking I was the smartest person. And that's when the first, you know, the no facts in the side of the building get the heck outside. But the the other part of that is. There's no way you could be smarter than the collective intelligence of your potential customers. It's a big idea. I mean, you know, if you're starting a company and you think, well, our customers are going to be X, go up to a whiteboard and draw me the day in the life of the customer of those customers. Well, well, that missing information on the whiteboard just tells you about what you need to go learn. And this isn't a three-year PhD research project. You could kind of quickly physically or nowadays virtually, which is the new thing I learned via COVID, is you could do customer discovery probably better and faster uh, using Zoom or Skype or Microsoft Teams. In fact, I don't even suggest that anybody physically leave their building for their first customer discovery interview anymore uh, because you could do 10x more. Um, and what you lose in kind of intonation and, and uh, kind of context, you could gain in coverage for at least the first round of customer discovery. Right. So, I, I was going to ask you about that because COVID obviously affects one's ability to get out of the office. A, because there's no office, and B, because there's no right. office to go to. Um, but that's that's really interesting, and it and it and, and it sounds just right. What you lose in in in, in what did you say in in context? In and, context, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you gain in volume. So yes. And, so, and and we'll give you enough kind of like oh maybe this really is worth a personal visit. So it allows you to kind of map out the order of battle of, you know, like where are all the pieces and who, who's worth a revisit. And, oh, gosh, it's really hard to do a demo, even though they were vaguely interested over the over the web. Um, now let me go physically go visit those folks, at least when when we can travel or travel at scale. Um, but I, I no longer suggest that you do them all um, in person for the first round. Um and it's just uh, the amount of coverage you could get is literally 10x or more, uh, depending on the distances you need to travel. And, and and the other part, of course, is people are now across the world conditioned to using um, um, video conferencing as a normal way to communicate rather than some odd one-off thing about how come you don't care to visit me. Steve, you mentioned early on how a number of different components came together to form 
the lean startup methodology. But I'm wondering, in the past few years, the past five or ten years, have there been has it evolved further? Have there been new ideas coming through? Oh, there's been a ton of new ideas. Um, you know, I think uh, my work, Eric's and Osterwalder's, is just the foundation of hundreds of other innovators. You know, adding you know. Uh, uh, adding to it and, and, and forking from it and, and coming up with their versions of the canvas and their versions of customer discovery and, you know, design thinking came out of this or came at the same time. And, um, you know, I look at all those and then people sometimes say, well, you know, which version should we use? And I go, any. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not really, if you, listen, it's like, which clothes should I wear today? Just at least wear some clothes. Um, it's, um, uh, seriously, it, it, it's less so a religious battle, though some people kind of like really fight for their, you know, version. And uh, usually it's not the people came up with the idea. It's people were proselytizing or at least consulting that says, oh, we have the way. There is no the way. It's the sum of the ideas that says, look, all you got are hypotheses. So, so let's figure out any method that allows you to rapidly, you know, test them and and figure out, can we have you not waste a ton of money, time, etc., and find, the rather than a local maximum, a global maximum of whether this is going to be a profitable business. That's it. Um, you know, some of the things I've been involved in was is figuring out kind of what's the front end of, of maybe lean um, and what are some additions? Uh, the jobs to be done uh, work by Tony Olbuck uh, happens to be something I've been looking at in the in the last year or so. But there are lots of other great additions. So for anybody listening, you know, pick whatever methodology kind of clicks for you that you and your team can actually implement. And and don't get wrapped up in the religion. Get wrapped up in the doing because it turns out. Getting out of the building is hard, it's a lot of, whether it's physically or virtually, because if you're a great entrepreneur and a great team, you just want to build something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just build it. Of course we're right. That's the biggest you know, issue is not which version do you use. So, so I, I hope I answered the question of, you know, of, of, of course everybody wants to say this is the way. I, I get suspicious about people who start doing that because they're probably trying to sell a, sell you something, whether it's their book or their class or their something. Um, it's whichever one you use. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very empowering message. I, the, the word any really uh, really resonates with me. Well, like any that. you use, right? It's not just, you know, gee, I read the book and think, great, which one are you going to do and stick to or figure out, well, that didn't work or it's getting in our way and we're slowing us down. You know, the idea of lean, it's not a giant focus group or any of these methodologies. It's a bit, the big idea that a lot of people miss. It's to inform the founding team's vision. If you don't have a vision and you think this is a giant spreadsheet, we're going to go out and talk to people and run a focus group, you've got to be working in a big company. You know, founders have a have a view of, of where they see the world going and, and how they're going to help it get there. Um, and what this these methods allow you to do is very quickly find out whether you can find other people who share that vision, want to use the product and grab it out of your hands or and or pay for it. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, designed by spreadsheet about here's all the features everybody else has told us they want. Uh, that's what product managers do in large companies. Is, you know, you could sit in your building and do that. 
Right. I'm wondering if you ever imagined as you were coming up with these ideas and helping to build Silicon Valley and seeing the early days of the of of, of the the digital slash internet revolution, did you ever imagine that we'd be in a world that is so dominated by these new companies, the industrial companies, the platform companies that have that are really not not only changing the way we work and how we live, but also you know dominating the stock markets. Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, by the turn of the century, it was pretty clear to me. Um, well, first of all, let me just remind you that the you know the great thing is about entrepreneurs is that you know if you're good at it you see past the horizon than most people, um, you know, and while you're talking about things like you see, people are going, what are you talking about? It's I, I don't, and you see this shiny, shiny city at, on the hill where you see something that no one else could see. Um, but every once in a while you get incredibly surprised. Um, the thing I understood at the turn of the century was that there was a confluence of things that were happening. Number one, we're, we're talking about lean and the methodology. Well, that was a major contributor. But as I mentioned earlier, the availability of Amazon Web Services or the, its, its equivalents and from other companies turned computing into a utility, which dramatically lowered the cost by maybe a thousand X of any software startup in the, and who could be anywhere in the world. And then the explosion of open source. Again, you no longer need to write all this code. You, you, you started uh, had to start from scratch every time. And we're seeing another wave of that with Microsoft Copilot and, and some of these other um, AI coding apps uh, built on uh, GPT-3 and other um, text. But, the, but I'm getting to the point that, that the part I didn't see was the enormous explosion of uh, angel and venture capital. I mean, just uh, uh, unbelievable growth. R remember, and, and this is, with with all due respect, the one problem with innovation and entrepreneurship in Canada is while entrepreneurs are everywhere, venture capital at scale is not. Um, you, you know, U.S. companies raised over $300 billion last year. Now, Canada is about, what is it, 10 or 15 percent of of the U.S. population. 10%. Yeah, so let's just take 10%. So that should be $30 billion of Canadian venture capital. And I don't think we're anywhere near there. That's my point. Yeah. Um, and and so, so while we celebrate the fact that entrepreneurs are everywhere in Canada, risk capital, that is capital like angel capital and venture capital, is not. And, and if you don't have that, then what you have is one hand clapping. It doesn't work. Um, for an entrepreneurial ecosystem to grow is that you need capital for both not just angels, but for scale, or else those entrepreneurs just pick up and go to the place where the money and the resources exist. Um, and that's, I think, the, been the perennial problem with uh, Canadian entrepreneurship. It's not the entrepreneurs. It, it's actually the finance. Um, and that, you know, that gets back into culture and, and, and tax and, you know, where can I make the most money and, and history, et cetera. Um, so, so that's something to just consider is, is that as we're talking about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, is that you need entrepreneurial um, capital as well. And if, if there isn't a entrepreneurial capital culture and if there isn't, um, you know, a, a tax system that incents it and, and, you know, the goal of venture capitalists are, are not to invest in startups. The goal in venture capitalists are to make the most obscene amount of money they can, and they happen to do that by investing in startups. Um, 
and so if there isn't a system that allows that, then they go to other places where they can. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I just uh, looked it up using the incredible research department here at Startup Canada. Oh, uh, Google. Google, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> so the record high year was 2019 uh, with $6 billion uh, venture capital invested in Canada. So it's a little higher than I thought, but nowhere near uh, 10% of the of the U.S. value. Uh and uh, 2021 surprisingly was uh, proceeding ahead of that, although the, fu the the full numbers aren't in yet. So it's it's still growing, but we we clearly don't have the the, the depth that that we need to get funding to all the companies that that are deserving. And if you think about it, it's not that you know entrepreneurs are smarter in the U.S. I mean, they're, yeah, I, I think they're smarter everywhere. Um, it's just that people tend to gravitate to where they'll get funded for scale. Um, and by the way, a definition of an entrepreneurial cluster for me is not, you know, a city that has lots of entrepreneurs. It's in fact a, a city or region that's a magnet for capital and people, a magnet. So it's not just, you know, people in that city are doing entrepreneurship. It's that people from around the country and world are coming there. And so is capital. And if that's not happening, happening, you don't have an innovation cluster. You have innovation, but it's not really a cluster. Um, and uh, and there's a long conversation about how to create one or how to incent one. And there are parts of Canada where, man, if if I was a government, I'd be not wouldn't be very hard to figure out how to create those zones around the the places that already exist. Um, and, and not to digress too much, but there are countries that have figured out how to actually build equivalents to Silicon Valley. There are a number of countries have, who have figured out how to actually build entrepreneurial clusters. Um, Israel for one, but obviously Singapore reinvented itself every decade. Uh, China has done a spectacular job building innovation clusters in major uh, cities ac across China. Uh, so it is possible, but it requires a, a long-term view and, and uh, major commitment from governments to make it happen. And we're we're still talking with government here at Startup Canada to try and uh, and 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 get them thinking about it. We have we hear a lot of good words, uh, but action sadly takes time. Um, well, we're, we're, uh, let me just let me just put a pin on it. For you know the the problem with most governments is you know most people who who uh, try to make policy here is ne have never run a lemonade stand, let alone run a business or a startup. And so what it really takes is. Um, government agencies with people who have actually been here and done that um, and have uh, access to budget and and, uh, and policy. And if that doesn't happen, you get lots of words and lots of hand-waving, but, uh, but no action. And I think that's a detriment, particularly to, in Canada, which has, you know, all the right uh, components to be an entrepreneurial powerhouse, um, world-class entrepreneurs, world-class universities, etc. It's right. just a shame. The thing I'm excited about is that we have a lot of entrepreneurs. We're, we're, we're reaching that critical mass of entrepreneurs who have had successful careers and have made some money and have cashed out of their businesses, and they are starting funds or participating in funds, and, and, and we're seeing that really smart money coming in. And I, and I think that's a really important part of the puzzle. Absolutely. Let me ask you about Silicon Valley. You have some theories about Silicon Valley and and the ethos there that 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 combined to create Silicon Valley, but I don't want to talk about that because what's interesting is that in the new work that you're doing, 
you're pushing your theories of startups and rapid iteration and getting out of the office and and and, and into new areas and as we mentioned you're teaching a course at Stanford now on uh, on, on technology nations and national power and and I'm fascinated by that because I've always been fascinated by how entrepreneurial values and techniques can work in bigger businesses and you're taking that further to looking at some of the some of the biggest institutions in our society. And so tell me a little bit about the the work that you're doing in 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 technology and nations and the great powers. Sure. So you you know um when we talk about great powers, you know, we talk about, you know, Britain in the 19th century. and Britannia rules the waves. Yeah, and we, we talk about various, uh, uh, various countries before of kind of why did they kind of dominate uh, the world? And, <clears throat> and you think about, uh, you know, what are the components of national power? And uh, there's an acronym called DIME, which says it's the a country's diplomatic efforts, its uh, ability to create uh, and control information, its military and its economic power. It's the sum of all these things. And, and uh, one of the interesting things we've observed uh, as sitting at Stanford in, Sil- in the middle of Silicon Valley is that for the first time ever, um, it, it, certainly in the U.S. and I think worldwide, militaries no longer control the technologies necessary to deter or prosecute a war. That it used to be that militaries had their own labs and, you know, worked with prime contractors, et cetera, and, and they got the most advanced stuff necessary and, you know, that wasn't available on the commercial market. Like, you know, you couldn't order a drone or you couldn't have crypto or you couldn't put a, a rocket into space. And a, oops, all of that is now available off the shelf uh, to anybody. Uh, Yet the military, at least in the United States uh, and in most of the Western democracies, have a real hard time in reconfiguring the way they budget, start requirements, acquire all these things that never were available from commercial companies, startups, you know, scale ups, large new new ventures. Um, while uh, China, who started from scratch, didn't have this history of of labs and whatever. So basically have integrated their commercial companies and their military system together, which has resulted in a, just in a massive uh, um, kind of increase in the size of their military and, and in fact, the innovations inside of it. Um, so I, we've been kind of pondering uh, how do you kind of get uh, military organizations and government or and not just the department of defense but other parts of the government the state department the um commerce etc but to start thinking about how do you kind of connect all the innovation going on outside of you know this closed system that that exists and it's a tough problem um you know it, it is classic what we call disruption um new business model, new acquisition system, new, new ways of thinking. And of course, you know, when you have millions of people who went to work every day thinking this is how the world worked and you now tell them that it's not, um, you know, the, the institution pushes back hard 
for multiple reasons. So that's the yeah. short answer of, of, of what we see and what we're doing. Um, and the, the last piece, my by the way, my personal motivation is, uh, you know, I mentioned Britain. I don't have to tell your audience in Canada, but after World War II, I mean, Britain was exhausted from having a, both a colonial empire and fighting a world war and basically, you know, kind of backed down from all its co colonial outposts and and basically handed them back. Um, but but Britain was, you know, a democracy and, and another, the new rising power was another democracy for all our faults. And it was the United States. And, and so we were able to kind of push forward this this notion of, you know, democratic rule and and self-determination and freedom of speech and and the rest for the rest of the 20th century and, and up till now in the 21st. The problem is, is that, um, you know, uh, my personal opinion is is that's not the model that China has. It's a neo-totalitarian state. Just go ask the Uyghurs or people in Tibet or now even the people in Hong Kong about what it's like if you dissent from their government. Um, I'm not sure that's a that's a century I want my kids to live in. And so um, so figuring out how to make democracies more agile to take advantage of all the, the changes that um, we're making in the commercial world seems to be a good thing for me to do. And so that's where I've been spending some time as well. And what, 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 what you know, you've been teaching the course, I think, for two years now. And I imagine that teaching the course is a marvelous way to bring a lot of minds together to think what really is the problem and how do we best define it and then how do we best uh, take shots at it. So how have things been coming along then in, in those few years that you've been focusing uh, a lot of people's attention on this problem? So it's funny you ask that. So the first time we taught it, um, the light bulb went off uh, you know, on my head, much like with the, the lean method. You know, when when I came up with Lean, it was as you mentioned earlier, and and I want to double down on it. It was, it was such an obvious idea. You know, it's like there's no. As I it's said, only obvious when you see it, yeah, and hear it. And there was no math it. involved, right? It was like <laughs> you didn't even have to use fractions. It was like pretty simple. And by the way, it was the best practices of what you know great entrepreneurs were doing anyway. All I did was codify it and put it in a framework that other people could replicate. So. I say that because, you know, teaching this first class was kind of like it was uh, my work, someone named Joe Felter and, and um, Raj Shah. Um, at the end of the class, we kind of realized that, oh, my gosh, you know, we're in the middle of Silicon Valley. We're in the middle of Stanford University. We maybe do have some assets here that really don't exist at scale. I mean, they exist a little bit, but at scale than any other place. Why don't we actually start a center that uh, could not only be a think tank, because there are a ton of them, but actually deliver uh, minimum viable products at the same time, because, gee, we kind of know something about that. So we started a center called the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation, which kind of combines all these elements. You know, we, we know the technology, AI, machine learning, autonomy, uh, crypto, quantum, life science, biotech, it's uh, access to space. Um, with the ability to kind of create prototypes, and there are great policy shops at, at Stanford, uh, Hoover Institute, and Freeman Spogley, who have great thinkers. And why don't we put all those pieces together and see if we could um, uh, see if we could generate something uh, different and new that could move with some speed and urgency? So we just—it's it's really interesting that you say that because um, so often in entrepreneurship, a, 
a solution doesn't exist until you get people together talking about it and then something emerges. So here, uh, the same thing. You, you Just by talking about it helped lead to some very specific steps that will hopefully have concrete outcomes. Yeah, you know, and... And it kind of fits in, in, in kind of my belief about, you know, what do you do after you've been an entrepreneur and, you know, what what do you want to leave behind in the world is, you know, I think at the end, besides making money and having a great time as an entrepreneur, you ought to think about in, in whatever order you want is, um, you know, what contribution did you make to, you know, God, country, community and family? Um you know, and, and if the answer is, well, I haven't had time to think about that, uh, you know, you might want to pick your head up a bit and, and think about it. Um, are, are, are you getting buy-in from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs into the Gordian Knot Center? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the best and the brightest. And, and uh, we, uh, you know, we weren't proselytizing or recruiting, but um, but I've been surprised um, how many people have also made some decisions about their life that go yeah, you know, I've had a good run as an entrepreneur, or gee, I did a couple startups, or gee, I, you know, I was thinking about startups, but this really seems even more interesting. And uh, you know, you gotta you gotta figure out about where do you want to spend your time and and what's important to you. And and there's no value judgment on either one. But it, as I said, being able to think about um, about you know, we're we're just here for a short period of time, though we never think so. Um, where do you want to make those contributions and, and what's important? Right. Um, what's amazing to me is I'm not sure that big business has picked up on lean startup methodology. I don't think it's much better at innovation than it was 20 years ago. But it seems I, like you've I, sort I of skipped. I disagree, by the way. Um, I'm working with a couple of large companies that have definitely built lean innovation pipelines at scale that would rattle your teeth. Um, oh, yeah. Want to name any names? Um, you know, the two publicly I, I I can name. One is uh, W.L. Gore that, you know, came up with Gore-Tex and the rest. And Greg Hannon, their CTO, has definitely embraced this in a $3 billion company. And, and the other one is Applied Materials. And their CTO probably is probably the best I've seen in the world. It's a $17 billion company. They make the machines that make uh, semiconductors. And... Uh, you know, they basically move atoms around to, on materials and and they have things going on that inside their innovation pipeline. That's probably as good as any place um, I've ever seen. So and I've seen and I'm just picking on those two. But, oh, no, there are lots of large companies that have figured out how to not just do lean, but build an end to end process. So uh, I'll, I'll just mention this for a second for, you know, one of the consequences of uh, of that Harvard Business Review article was every large company thought, well, this is great. Let's start an incubator or an accelerator inside. And at the end, uh, I felt kind of guilty because the score after five years was probably zero. We ended up with innovation theater, but not not a lot of innovation actually shipped. And the problem was is we really hadn't figured out how to build an ambidextrous organization by design. That is, a, uh, you know, people have been talking about this for decades. And but large companies that could innovate and execute simultaneously. And, and, and that's not a technology problem. That's typically an organizational design problem and a culture problem. And it requires hard decisions um, from the top up front, which 
you think setting up an incubator is hard. No, no, no. It's explaining and figuring out is how did all the channel conflict that will come, all the brand conflict that will come when you start doing this. Um, and, you know, and arguments of your CFO about, you know, how to invest capital here and whether it's should we build, buy, acquire, et cetera. Those are large strategy questions that um, that took a couple of years for for the best and the brightest to figure out. And that these it shouldn't be a point. Innovation should not be a point activity. It should be an end to end process. And we ought to decide what type of innovation we're even talking about is we're we talking about you know, acceleration of, of current product lines, or are we talking about finding new markets, new customers, or are we talking about disruptive innovation? They're very different, different processes, different people. Um, so I think we've gotten in, in some of the best companies a lot more sophisticated about thinking about the process. We're not done yet, but there are some really good models. I point everybody to applied uh, materials is probably the best innovation pipeline I've seen. Um, at scale, I mean, for companies north of ten billion U.S. dollars. Okay, then I have never been so happy to be <laughs> corrected no. and, and in my life. It's definitely not done, and, and it's not perfect, and it's not whatever. But much better than like five years ago. Um, uh, truly, people are getting smarter at this um, after screwing it up. I mean, I've I've run programs inside of government agencies where we've put ten thousand people through lean processes. And I would, and in that one, I'd say we failed miserably because we didn't move the needle because the rest of the organization wasn't bought in. And boy, we're not making that same mistake again now that we're standing up others. Uh, we kind of understand all the pieces that need to work. And I think it takes time. It's just much like when the lean method started with entrepreneurs, we, we did trial and error. I mean, that's the whole notion of how companies and people get smart. You learn from, from past experience. To me, the amazing thing is that I hear so many entrepreneurs today, and I talk to lots of startup entrepreneurs, and, and they're all talking customer development now. And, you know, if that's the only contribution that you made, Steve, I think that would be pretty considerable all by itself that so many people realize that that's their job. And, and, it, and it's so exciting because once you take that step, then I think a lot of the other uh, best practices flow directly out of that. Well, thank you. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was fun on, on multiple levels. Had a great time as an entrepreneur. Have had a equally great time as an educator. But uh, as I said, everybody needs to think about and you know what do you want to what do you want to do for the world instead of just taking? What are you going to give back? And uh, and with that, I want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you. I'm not going to let you go though, until you give us one really cool entrepreneurship tip. So, so the last question we always ask is if you have one actual piece of advice that uh, entrepreneurs can put into and in, in, can implement in their businesses right away. Well, I think I mentioned it, but let me uh, just double down on it. Um, you know, video conferencing is now your lean and customer discovery superpower. Um, the excuses I physically can't get out of the building, so can't do it, is not only wrong; it's 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 very wrong. You could now 10x customer discovery. People on the receiving side, you know, won't think twice about picking up a, a Zoom or or, or a Skype call, um, and and they'll do it in their pajamas. So you now have access to people you probably never could have talked to before, at least easily. So uh, get out of the building using video conferencing right now, and when when you uh, 
stop listening to this podcast. Do you have, that's very good advice, do you have any surefire ways for getting through to a decision maker? Has, has your work gotten that practical? Oh, it's, it's still the same as, the, as I used to say. Uh, you know, obviously now uh, uh, phone calls and, and admins, uh, you know, are, are still there, but maybe a little less important. But get people off hours and, and uh, get them through uh, other connections via LinkedIn and social media is your best friend. And, you know, see if you could connect with them in, in any other way. Uh, uh, and, and remember, these are two-way streets and, and uh, passionate entrepreneurs uh, sometimes confuse you know, their interest with a uh, potential recipient's interest, you know, what are you going to offer them that makes them want to have this call? So, hey, I'd love to chat with you because I need something. Well, yeah, that's nice. But I'd love to chat with you and, and tell you about, you know, w what some of your competitors are doing. Well, I really want to have that call, you know, or, or, do, you, know, or you don't have to be that blatant about, you know, what, what we've been doing, working with some of the most advanced companies in your field. Well, yeah, you got my interest. Does that make sense? Perfect. I, I would take that out and frame it. That's great stuff. We have been talking with Steve Blank, and we've been educated by Steve Blank, uh, the father of modern entrepreneurship theory, the person who's helped so many entrepreneurs figure out the best step forward. And you're still working away at it, you're still learning, and now you're pushing these theories onto higher and even uh, more in, more strategically important levels. Thank you for all the work that you've done, Steve. It's, it's just incredible, and we look forward to checking in with you again. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.